Welcome to the 407th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Natalie Zena Walshots, author of the new novel, Hinch. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Natalie Zena Walshots, author of the new novel, Hinch. Natalie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Great. If someone hasn't heard about your novel, Hinch, yet, how would you describe the novel? I would describe it as it's a story of a hench woman, as in one of the often downtrodden and disposable employees of supervillains. Like a lot of people in the terrible future, she is stuck in the gig economy. And in her particular case, she answers the phones and fills out spreadsheets and does data entry for terrible people. She has a, her life is in a bit of a holding pattern at the beginning of the novel, but she soon has a run in with one of the most powerful superheroes in this particular universe that it's an encounter that leaves her badly injured and with, with a no job and not really much mobility ends up in a situation where she starts to seriously consider the impact that superheroes have on the communities that they are ostensibly supposed to protect. So there's a startling amount of body horror and a pretty profound misunderstanding of quantum mechanics. And I've made it sound there's just a lot of like eye lasers and uh, and evil plans. And there's for sure a lot of those. But I also like to think that it's pretty funny. Great. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Hinch? Sure. I've always been fascinated with the plight of Hench people. <laughs> like as characters, they've always been super, super interesting to me. I, as, as much as we've heard the classic superhero narrative over and over again, I want to know how you end up 
working for a supervillain, wearing a ridiculous outfit, essentially being cannon fodder to get like thrown at a hero to probably end up with a terrible spinal injury just as in the opening moments of a climactic battle, right? What in your life brings you to this place? And as a lifelong fan of comics uh, and a lifelong fan of these kinds of stories, I've been fascinated with these characters who are typically relegated to the background. And we never get to see their stories and we never get to to learn what brought them to these weird and often really terrible situations. And and eventually I realized that was the story that I wanted to write. I've always I also I think a critical part of the hench person plight is their disposability. We're we're not supposed to feel bad when a superhero picks somebody up and throws them through a wall because they're a bad guy, whatever that means. And and we're comfortable accepting all of these often really horrific things that happen to these people. And the second you start thinking about it for a moment in terms of like real consequences, it stops being so fun and gets pretty horrifying. So that was something that I wanted to explore too, the way that, you know, that we can, how do we become comfortable just classifying a person as disposable or as a non-person? And what can we do to like undo that thinking and start examining like what that means in terms of someone's humanity? <laughs> so uh, a novel about the red shirts of the superheroes and supervillains. One, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that you've worked in video games. How has that work mm. impacted your fiction writing? I think that those they're super different modes to work in and having a a variety of potential paths in video games is has has probably had the biggest impact like I, I write a lot of dialogue and a lot of branching narratives. So, you know, what that means is the story will go a different way depending on what the player's choices are. And that can be in dialogue trees. So you can, someone is talking to you, you choose one of two or three options or however many, they respond to you based on what you say. That kind of thing. It also can be player action driven. So you do a certain thing, you pick up a certain quest, or you don't pick up a certain quest, and that has an impact on the story. And I think that's probably had the biggest impact in games. You have, you're still making choices, but you're leaving a lot of choices open to the player. But there's a lot of decision making that you are facilitating, but that you're still leaving open. And I think that has made my my fiction writing a lot more exploratory in a way because I don't necessarily think of this is the next obvious thing. This is the only thing that can happen. I think in terms of options, like here are the five things that could happen next. What would this protagonist choose? What is of the available options, the step that feels the best and the step that feels the most natural. So I think that kind of like openness to narrative and and dialogue possibilities is probably the biggest impact. And given that, what is your creative process when writing a work of fiction? Kinch, do you you plot the novel and in the process of plotting it is when you think about those five different possibilities of where the plot could go? I would love to tell you that I am like an extremely organized person that has like outlines and knows at all what they're doing and has any plan whatsoever. But honestly, my my process is 
I carve out a piece of time. I sit down. I write for that amount of time. I come back the next day. I do the same thing. These aren't necessarily big blocks of time or often they're word counts. It doesn't matter how trash it is, but I need to write 750 words today. Just get through it and do the thing. And, and then at the, at the end of that, I end up doing it again. So <laughs> I, I start over at the beginning and say, okay, let here is what happened. Here are all the choices that I made, are they the right ones? So every it's something that kind of comes up spontaneously at every decision making juncture and gets revisited as I continue drafting. And so do you ever have days when those 750 words just don't come? And if so, do you have any tips or tricks to get the words flowing? I absolutely do. Usually I can I like squeak out 750 terrible words. You know what I mean? E even if they are unusable, like I can force them out of my body. But at the end of the day, if something like just is absolutely not happening, I don't know, maybe it's time to watch a, a, a reality show about like classic cars for a few hours <laughs> and just cleanse my mental palate. There, there is for sure a point at which like giving up for the day is better because it will make tomorrow better. You will, you can reset and, and begin again. So I'm definitely not going to pretend that I'm a person who is ab absolutely religiously dedicated to, to writing every single day. That's definitely not true. It's a goal. That it is, it's something that I, I work toward, but if it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. What are your earliest memories of writing fiction and what was your path to publication? Oh man, I've written fiction since I was a, a very little kid. Like I've written lots of things since I was very small. Like I would literally like make books out of construction paper by like ripping or folding them into little packets and stapling them together. I did this before I could form words. I would just write the shapes of words, but I I knew I wanted to make books. So there that that wasn't really a decision so much as it was not to get weird about it, but a state of being for me. I the path to publication has been extremely weird and, and circuitous. I started off publishing poetry. I have two books of poetry out in the world, one called Thumbscrews, which is about constraint-based poetry and sadomasochism. And then I have Doom, Love Poems, Supervillains, which narrator voice, that is what we call foreshadowing. So that's my like first origins and publications. And those are relatively like small artisanal press kind of stuff, relatively small print runs. The poetry is for sure very weird. And then I promptly spent the better part of a decade writing freelance. And that was everything from music journalism. It's primarily how I made my money. I specialized in heavy metal. I wrote about video games and then started writing them. I did lots of arts and culture journalism. I did some more creative stuff, but did primarily focus on that. And then I, in a, around the time I started making video games seriously, back in, in like 2013, I wrote the first 30,000 words of Hench really just for myself as this like a thing I wanted to do that I thought would be fun and funny and I would explore the lives of 
these characters that I'd been thinking about for a very long time. There were a few years where I made a, an ill-advised attempt at getting a PhD and did a lot of other things in my life. But a couple of years ago, I came back very seriously to the project and rededicated myself. I guess that was about in, in 2017 and finished finished a couple of drafts of the book, at which point I'm lucky enough to have an agent and, and a really incredible one. So when the second draft was done, I was able to hand that off to him. And he, he was very excited about it and super supportive. And with, with his advice and the my, his co-agent's advice, we got it to a place where he felt comfortable and I felt good about uh, him taking it to market last year. And again, super lucky, like I'm extraordinarily lucky in all of this, but uh, it ended up getting bought by William Morrow, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And I got to work with David Pomerico there, who's an extraordinary editor. So yeah, that's that has been the story so far. And it, it has never ceased to be incredible to me. It has not stopped being, uh, feeling, feeling very surreal and dreamlike the whole time. You mentioned your heavy metal journalism. Do you have it a is. favorite metal album? Do I have a favorite metal album? Uh, probably Heartwork by Carcass. It's like, I have a huge soft spot for like melodic death metal. And that, that's, that album is incredible. Carcass are incredible. It's really hard to, it's really hard to go wrong there, but I'm really torn because I also love strapping young lad and everything Devin Townsend does more than I know how to express. It would be a very difficult, I'd have a very difficult time kind of calling it between heartwork and something like city. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP SmartSide today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Did you have a soundtrack uh, or a playlist when you were working on Hitch? I listen to aggressive music pretty exclusively and the, <laughs> the it's a bit all over the place. I tend to listen to music that either doesn't have lyrics or has like highly distorted lyrics. So I'm not like the words are not distracting. I find like that very like the sound is helpful, but not the words. So I listened to uh, a lot of very heavily distorted death metal, a lot of black metal, some sort of heavier industrial 
stuff as well. But that's just my life soundtrack, not necessarily (laughs) my like writing exclusive soundtrack. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? This is extremely cliche maybe, but do it. Like the hardest thing in the entire world is doing it and doing it regularly. I fall out of this all of the time. Like it's very easy to like get out of your rhythm and get out of your routine. And then three weeks have gone by and you haven't done anything. And like you start to feel the omnipresent guilt of the not writing, which feels like an actual literal ghost that haunts you. So it's however you have to trick yourself into doing it. That is my absolute best advice. Do you love bubble tea? Get yourself a bubble tea every time you hit a particular word goal, right? What Whatever is the best kind of bribe or the best like carrot and stick combination that works for you to like trick or cajole or make that practice feel good, I recommend you do that because once you're in the habit of it, it gets so much easier. And when you're in writing shape. I don't know how else to say it, but when you're writing a lot, it continues to be easier to write a lot. At least that is how it works for me, or that is how I find it. So I I recommend that for sure as, as often as you can, even if it's not a lot of volume. And I think writing, I think to the point that writing often is better than writing more. When I was at the beginning of my career, I felt like it didn't matter how regularly I wrote as long as I did put out a large volume. So I'd like have these marathon sessions that like destroyed my wrists and fingers. And it was a very stupid idea. And and I was convinced that was the best way of doing it. It is in fact not uh, to the point where like later on when I was trying to build better and healthier habits, I would restrict myself to word limits. This is actually something my partner suggested and and, and helped me with. And it ended up being an extraordinarily good idea, which is I had to write 500 words every day, but I could only write 500 words every day. And then I had to stop, which made me both want to continue the next day, but also prevented me from doing like that thing where it was like, okay, in the next week, I'm going to write 4,000 words. And then you do it all in the last couple of hours of the week crying, which not ideal. Yeah. I highly recommend writing often, as often as you can and doing whatever it takes to trick yourself if if that ends up being necessary. It is for me. So are you working on another novel now? I The future is a weird and strange thing, and who knows, but Lord willing and the creek don't rise. I've, I really would like to continue working in this universe. So whether or not it becomes a thing on the earth, which I would very much like it to, I have started notes and work toward a sequel. I think that would be very cool. I write a lot of horror short stories and microfiction as well. So I always have a, maybe there will be a collection of that at some point floating around in my brain. It'd be super rad if something like that happened. But yeah, mo- most of my energy right now is is directed toward continuing this story and seeing what, what potentially is there. When you work on a short story, do you, when you start it, do you have an idea or mo- in mind or do you literally start with a narrative hook and go from there or does it depend on the story? 
It does depend on the story, but the vast majority of the time, it's like a narrative hook or even a word. Like a thing I've done in the past is like asked like folks on Twitter to just give me words or send me weird screenshots or what should I do today and pick something that I like from there and, and generate something from it. So really, I tend to start with often a very small or strange jumping off point and go from there. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel Hinch? I'm my my Twitter is at Natalie Zed, so N-A-T-A-L-I-E-Z-E-D. I'm there a lot and I'm pretty accessible. My website is NatalieWalshots.com. So just the spelling of my first and last name dot com. There is there's info on the book. There is a link to an excerpt there. This should give you a pretty good idea of what of the horrors that await you if you choose to continue. So that's that's certainly an easy way. I'm also I'm available most places like on most social media platforms at Natalie Zed. You should be able to find me there. But yeah, there's there are there's lots of different places and lots of different ways to to reach me online. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Natalie Zena Walshots. Natalie's novel Hinch is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Natalie, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Hinch by Natalie Zena Walshots, narrated by Alex McKenna, published by Harper Audio and available wherever audiobooks are sold. Prologue August 2008 Haven Point, Maine Marin Marin took her mug of coffee outside and sank into the wicker love seat. Sky would finally arrive the following day. Marin had so much she needed to tell her granddaughter. The conversation was long overdue, but Marin was still uncertain how to go about it, or even where to begin. From the water came the sound of a horn, and Marin looked up to see a race underway. For the next half hour, she watched sailboats fly across the bay, white sails trimmed to harness the brisk breeze. The boats rounded their mark and went behind Gunnison Island, but from her perch high on the cliff, Marin could still catch glimpses of the mastheads when they emerged from behind clumps of spruce, like stealthy hunters gliding between coverts. The cannon shot signaling the end of the race startled Marin from her reverie. She had been like this since her daughter died six months earlier, wavering between agonizing grief and a strange fugue state. Most days, she had found herself sitting in this very spot for hours, just staring out at the water. If Georgie was right, and she usually was, the hurricane barreling toward the coast could cause problems on Haven Point. It was hard to imagine, given the crisp air and sapphire sky today, but Marin had spent enough summers here to know how quickly the skies could change. With no more effort than it took to wipe a cloth across a dusty shelf, a storm could mock their efforts to tame this wild peninsula. Go ahead, build your roads, carve your paths, plant your gardens. Never forget who's really in charge, though. She and Skye would be fine in Four Winds, of course. The old house had faced down plenty of weather in its day. 
Marin sat listening to the ocean engaged in its violent, noisy, age-old battle with the rocks below. That strangely pacifying sound was the heartbeat of this house. She'd always thought of Four Winds as a living thing, pulsing, thrumming, speaking to her. She had loved it from the first, even when she so mistrusted the community outside its doors. Skye did not know it yet, but Four Winds would be hers someday. Marin had planned to leave it to both her children. But a few years earlier, Billy had made his wishes clear. I love it there, but I've lived abroad my whole adult life. Let Annie have the house, he'd said. She wouldn't want it. You never know, Billy replied with a gentle smile. She just might decide to come back to Haven Point someday. Billy had been right. In the end, the very end, Annie had wanted to come back. Her granddaughter did not know this yet either. After the memorial service, Skye had asked what they would do with the ashes. We can figure it out later, Marin had said. Skye had been satisfied. She had no reason to imagine her mother, flaky on her best day, downright reckless on her worst, had left detailed instructions on that or any subject. There was so much Skye didn't understand about her mother. Marin rose and went inside to the living room. Her eyes took in the books, trophies, and pictures that crowded the shelves. They were all there, the demorest women, layered over one another like a fossil record, even Annie. Her daughter might have abandoned this house, but Four Winds had not returned the favor. She was everywhere. Her name next to Charlie's on the Stinniford Cup trophy, her face in photographs, her soul in paintings and drawings. And she lived on in Sky, too. Marin smiled at the memory of Oliver's reaction all those years before, when Annie told them she had decided to have a baby. Ah, artificial insemination. Oliver had nodded in his doctorly way, as if she had told him she planned to try a new heartburn medication. What an interesting idea. Do clinics provide this service to single women? I think so. I'm still looking into it, Annie had said breezily. If not, Flora said she would pretend she's my lover. How Oliver had not fallen out of his chair at that moment, Marin would never know. But of course, he was careful with Annie after everything that happened. They promised to love Skye, to do all they could to help raise her. They hadn't realized what they were signing up for, but it never mattered. From the first moment they were so beguiled by the little redhead, they would have cheerfully laid down their lives for her. Still, Skye saw Haven Point as her mother had. Beautiful on the surface, petty and snobbish underneath. Marin understood. She had once felt the same way. It was only in the worst moment of her life that she realized what she'd missed. Just as the big storms wiped out Haven Point Road, exposing the bedrock beneath, it had taken grief and pain washing everything away for Marin to finally see the community's sturdy foundation, its titanic heart. Marin recalled a maxim Annie used to share with her art students at the start of each semester. Everything depends on the quality and direction of light. 
It was only in the last year that Annie had finally applied this lesson to her own life, that she relinquished the story she had clung to for so long about what had happened here and who was responsible. By then, it had been too late. But it was not too late for Skye. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.